Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a big, big, big show for you today, so let's get right at it. Later on in the show, we're going to meet award-winning and best-selling Canadian author Lillian Nattel. Her new book, Only Sisters, follows the lives of two sisters. There's Joan, who is always reliable. She stayed behind to care for their widowed mother. And then there's the globe-trotting Vivian. When Vivian dies while working in a remote village, Joan is pushed to impersonate Vivian online, leaving Joan tangled between right and wrong and adventure and tragedy. It's the story of complex women and what actually defines and bonds a family. That's a little bit later on. First, though, we're going to meet Zach Hansen, who was just 12 years old when he and his brothers, Isaac and Taylor, recorded this earworm. That was Hanson and the song Mbop. It reached number one in 12 countries and was voted the best single of 1997 in the Village Voice and plenty of other places. And it was ranked number 20 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of the 1990s. 25 years and 16 million albums sold and many, many hits later, Hanson, well, they're still at it. Right now, they're on tour celebrating their 30th anniversary and supporting their latest record, Red, Green, Blue, RGB for short. I caught up with drummer Zach Hansen on a quick stop between gigs to talk about how he juggles having five kids with life on the road, Hop Jam, which is Hansen's annual beer and music festival, and why he thinks Hansen have always been just a little bit of an anomaly. Zach Hansen joined me via Zoom. I've been reading about you. You have five kids. How do you navigate the personal and professional parts of this job while you're on tour? Is there a lot of FaceTime, a lot of Zooming with the kids? Yeah, I will say the technology definitely has been a huge benefit to help add that connection that, that you know, historically was just sort of long distance calls and well wishes. Um, but I think probably a mistake is there's no normal, you know, there's, it's, it's a very nomadic kind of lifestyle when you're on the road, you know, in this case, we'll be on the road from June till uh, the end of November. Uh, so you just, you, know, you see them wherever you can, you try to be present whenever you're with them, you fly out whenever you have, you know, days off long enough. And, um, and then you just, you know, you make lots of phone calls. <laughs> well, your kids range from age five to 14 years old. Do they really understand what you do for a living? Well, they, um, you know, it's interesting. I think they do understand, you know, they, they spent the first two weeks of this tour, uh, just left a few days ago out with me, you know, so they see that kind of dynamic of playing shows and uh, cool concerts and uh, fans outside the bus, but they just, they don't care that much about it. You know, they look at you and they go, your dad. And, and I think for my part, and I think this is true of all three of us, we're trying to show them like, this is a great job, but it's also, there's, there's a lot of work to it. A lot of time spent away from home, you know, a lot of different kinds of demands that are on you meeting people late at night on the street. You still got to be kind of there and say hello and talk to them about, you know, these experiences they've had with your music, which is like, exactly what you want but also nobody tells you that 
you're going to meet those people, mm-hmm. you know, outside a venue at 12 o'clock at night, you know, uh, this is kind of, there's interesting things that, uh, there aren't in the brochure when they say become a rock star. You know? <laughs> well, you've been famous since you were 12. It's so remarkable. It's 30 years now. Do you look at your kids and, and sort of imagine your early years through them somehow when you look at the, cause there are some of them are about the age that you were when, yeah. when, uh, it took off. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary to kind of, I think to me, what we've experienced seems very normal because it's just, you know, your perspective on yourself, especially I think when you're a young person is, hey, I want this. And so this is normal. This is what people want. You know, you, the, the beauty of youth is that that reckless abandon that allows you to go for your dreams and think of the most extraordinary thing and kind of think it's possible. You know, me, when I look at my kids now and I realize what we were doing when I was 12, I kind of go like, man, we were insane. We were crazy. But, um, you know, it was exactly what we wanted to be doing. And people would ask us, you know, where will you be in 10 years or 20 years or, you know, and and for us, it seemed like, well, of course, we'll be a band making records. And, you know, hopefully we'll be successful enough to, you know, <laughs> be touring the world. Um but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy thing. And, of course, it also reminds me we had great parents that found that amazing balance of not being stage parents, but really kind of putting their life on hold to let us start this career. And uh, then, you know, it tells me I've got to do a much better job for my kids. And you say that uh, as brothers, you're a bit of an anomaly. You work together. You've worked right. together for 30 years. And you don't fight, apparently. Can that be true? Well, well, you know, <laughs> don't fight is, is strong language. But I would right. say is we, we really have made a great effort to, to make those battles be about something. I think when you think about brothers fighting, you think about kind of cat fighting. You know, like, I hate you. You know, I want my shirt back. Kind of, this kind of stuff. <laughs> You're listening to Zach Hansen on The Richard Krause Show. Hansen's new album, RGB, is available now wherever you buy fine music. And so w- when we fight, it, it's really about things we, we deeply care about. And I think uh, we've had a, a life of doing kind of extraordinary things. And so you, you don't make it, you try and say, hey, whatever you want, we can make this happen. Like, let's just find this balance, that that always difficult balance of compromising for each other. And, and you know, we've had bad days. We've had, we've had bad weeks. But um, in the end, uh, we really want what people see to be about the stories of the songs, about the um, kind of the message of uh, these, these songs that usually have a, a, a twinge of hope and saying, like, you have a purpose in this world, you know. And, um, and to do that, you have to believe it. You have to act it out. Well, you talk about compromise a little bit and the new album, red, green, blue, RGB seems like a a, a perfect example of that. There's (laughs) 15 songs. There's three brothers. That's five songs each. Uh, so you've split it up red, green, you represent the blue part of this. Um, did you record all together or did you record separately? How did it work? Yeah, this it, it is very unique for us because, um, you know, historically we we write everything together and we produce everything together, and you know it's always there's always varying degrees of together. But mm-hmm. um, this was a very conscious choice to say, kind of 
as we're a band celebrating our 30th anniversary, what are the kind of stories we want to talk about? You know, what are the different ways that you're inviting people deeper into what it is that makes Hanson Hanson? And really kind of deconstructing the band into its parts was kind of this cool story to talk about how we make the music we make, why we've been a band for so long. And I think a big part of it is the ability to lean on each other, mm. right? The fact that each brother can kind of do it all on their own, could be their own band or their own solo artist. And, and so that was kind of the original musical inception, but kind of the way it, it came together was, was really, I, I can be your studio drummer or your studio background singer. I can come in and play whatever instrument you need, but in the end, I'm not going to tell you what you should do uh, versus on a normal record where brothers are going, no, do this, do that, do that. <laughs> this was really your producing it. And, and then we decided to work with two really good friends that we had never really done recording with, which was Davi Garza, who's a great artist and producer, Grammy Award winning producer, and uh, Jim Scott, who's a legendary uh, engineer, producer, you know, he's worked with Everybody from Jackson Brown and Red Hot Tom Petty, yeah. Tom Petty, and and uh, you know the Dixie Chicks, and uh, just everybody in between. And so, putting those guys in the room for me, kind of the way I thought about it was, well, I'm not going to have Isaac and Taylor sitting here, but I'm going to have Jim, and I'm going to have David, and this makes for a whole new kind of adventure and pushes you in different kinds of ways. And what do the colors red, green, and blue represent? Are they representative of your personalities? Are they really like, what, what does it mean to you? So the red, green, blue was kind of this interesting thing that had been around for a long time. When you're three oldest of seven kids, which we are, you have to find a way to kind of identify your stuff pretty quick. You know, there's a lot of things going around the house. <laughs> and so those had become colors early on that are, our mom had just bought for us, you know, mm. she'd buy blue things for me, but two things were true about red, green, and blue. I think they are kind of connected to our, our individual style. There's a certain passion about what Taylor does and something that's very grounded and, and earthy and, and who Isaac is. And uh, for my part, I think of myself more like the water, the blue kind of, I, I love, going into a space I've never been and kind of trying to find the corners and the adventure of it, you know? And so that was something that was true, but then we realized something else about those three colors, which is they're a format of color that makes every color, right? Your tube TVs or your, uh, you know, your led lights, it's red, green, and blue and white. And that makes every single color in the rainbow that those lights make. It was like, well, this is kind of a cool analogy that happens to just be, really deeply connected to who we've been in our whole lives. You're listening to Zach Hansen on The Richard Krause Show. Of course, he is one-third of the rock band Hansen. Everybody remembers Mbop and lots of other songs by them. They have a new album out. It's called RGB. stands for Red, Green, Blue. It's available now wherever you buy fine music. You started writing the song Where I Belong about five years ago. Uh, yeah. You never finished it. Why did it feel like you belonged on this record? More than almost anything on the record, it's about arrangement, which is something that I've grown to love, especially after we did our symphony project a few mm. years ago. We did a whole album of songs with symphonies. Um, and so that, that was really more stepping back into that mindset for a minute. Now we hope 
what were your thoughts as you're hearing the songs from your other two brothers and they're hearing yours? Right, did, right. did you have comments for one another? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't know the red being blue rule. No, <laughs> no, no. That, I mean, this is why I think at an earlier point in our career, this might not have been a project that we could do. Um, but there was such a confidence that what Taylor was going to bring or what Isaac was going to bring was going to be really full of quality that you were never worried about what they would be. Um, it was interesting to see the songs they chose, you know, uh, Taylor, for instance, he didn't play very much piano on this. He, he chose very consciously to, to write a lot of songs on guitar. And I think that was cool because it really exposed something different about, about Taylor. And, and, you know, because he, uh, is that sort of middle tenor voice. He sings so many leads historically in the band. I think it was cool for him to choose to push himself in a different space. That's very Taylor to find a new way to push. And Isaac, you know, he wrote uh, almost every song with someone else. So with David, he, he uh, wrote a song with our brother, Mac, our youngest brother. He, he kind of found these different ways to still find that partnership and that kinship. And, you know, the way he plays and lives and uh, is on stage, you know, so much of this is about doing it with people. Mm. It was interesting to me to see him, you know, knowing, hey, I'm not going to do it with us with Taylor and Zach. I'm still going to find a way to do this with with people I love, people I want to be around. Um, and so that was also a cool experience. Um, but it's surprising. Uh, a little surprising, but but all in, in really good ways. You're listening to Zach Hansen on The Richard Krause Show. Hansen's new album, RGB, is available now wherever you buy fine music. You are on tour now. The The pandemic, I, I would guess for you, was a layoff. You weren't able to get out and tour. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so you're out in front of fans again. The interesting thing about Hansen, though, for me, in terms of your fans and your fan base, is the way that you connect with them. So the pandemic shuts down the live music scene pretty much 100%. Certainly yeah. did here in yeah, Canada. Anyway, and I'm sure it did there too. And uh, But you uh, guys keep in touch with your fans and have sort of pioneered uh, you know, the website and, and working uh, in this way. Uh, yeah. to, to keep in touch with everybody. And it's very cool. There's songs that are only released to the fan club. And I love that because it feels, I read up on my shelf here somewhere behind me, I have the Beatles fan albums that they used to put out. They were only for the fan club. It's such a great idea. And it makes it feel special. And it makes, I think, a, a strong connection with the fans. Well, yeah, we, we're really lucky. I think we, we came about right at the very infancy of, of bands and brands jumping onto the internet and um you know our fans were that same age so they they just started to gobble up this idea of connecting and and being a band that has been lucky enough to have fans all over the world it was the only way that we could find to, to stay connected with places that we just wouldn't be yeah. you know we're not going to be back to australia or indonesia or um you know <laughs> any european tour for two, five years, whatever it is, right? Um, but what, what became really cool about that was also the community of people it, it built together. And so these have been really great ways for us to not only connect with each other, but they build these relationships. Fans build connections with people all around the world. And you see a fan from New York will fly to you know Helsinki because they met somebody online 
and now they're going to go see all the Nordic shows with right. their friends and from Helsinki. Um, but yeah, every year we release music to our, to our fan club. Um, every year we do events only for our Instant.net members. Like uh, we do an event in Jamaica where we, we do concerts. We rent out a whole resort and do concerts just for our members. Wow. I think, I think we feel like um, you should use the technology to create a, an island of your own, you know, an adventure island for Hanson music. Um, it And um, that's been a really, really great way for us to <laughs> you know, go through all these storms uh, in the world, things people never could expect. Like, hey, by the way, you can't tour for yeah. two years. You know, like, like, how do you get through that? Uh, without your hardcore fans saying, hey, I'm here. I'm coming to watch the live streaming concerts and and I'm going to keep supporting you through uh, paying for being part of a membership. And how do you choose uh, the songs that you'll play? There's 11 albums. Uh, there's you know songs that are only for the fan club and you might want to sprinkle some of those in there because yeah. it's cool. And when you play some of the older material, does it feel like you're having... Uh, like, is it like a snapshot of your life? Is it yeah, like looking correct. through a, a photo album or something? Well, you know, I, it is very hard to play uh, everything. And that's, mm. you know, we, we realized that. Uh, first thing is we're playing some of the longest shows we've ever played. Just just trying to make up for that fact that there's so much music. Um, we're playing, you know, music all the way. Um, Bop and Where's the Love? And I Was Born and you know, all the new stuff off of red, green, blue. So it's, it's a wide, wide mix. But I think for us, we try and think about all the first time showgoers, you know, there's an amazing amount of people still who are coming for their first shows. Do you want to, to touch on everything? You know, we're, we're lucky that we've always written our songs. And so everything that has been shared with people over these 30 years, uh, you know, 25 years since on Bop, right? All of that music, is ours so we don't feel like oh we have to not play it because it's not who we really are it's just sort of a version of who you are so it's a, a stepping stone to where you are today um there's definitely nostalgia you know playing some of these songs and and amazing memories all kinds of crazy memories when you're playing an older song like oh I remember when we played this place or or i remember when this person came on and a guest it during the song you know things like that uh, i remember playing you know Umbop on the Horde tour with Blues Traveler as the band. Like, like what a weird memory, you know, of them covering us Well, when we went to their show. Um, so there, there's a wild stuff like that. But you also look out in the audience and you can kind of see that reflected back at you. You see people, you know, pulling out their phone to catch their favorite song or looking at their friend or these days even their son or daughter. Like, oh, this is my song, you know. And, and so that that rejuvenates you on songs that lets you feel like, Hey, there's a real, I'm not just playing this for the thousandth time. I'm playing it for the first time. I'm playing it because of that great experience someone has with this song and, and, and it lets you kind of revitalize. It. That was Zach Hansen on the Richard Krause show. He is one third of the rock band Hansen who are on tour right now. And they have a new album called RGB and it's available now wherever you buy fine music. Today, we'll meet award-winning and best-selling Canadian author Lillian Nittell. The former chartered accountant is now the best-selling author of Girl at the Edge of Sky, Web of Angels, The Singing Fire, and The River Midnight. Her new book is called Only Sisters, and it's available wherever you buy fine books. 
In the novel, one sister runs away while the other one stays behind. But what happens when the dutiful sister has to impersonate the rebel? In this page-turning exploration of familial loyalty, resentment, secrets, and of grief, Lillian Nattel explores the meaning and reach of family bonds. In this interview, we talk about everything from Anne of Green Gables author Lucy Maud Montgomery to the social media platform TikTok. Lillian Nattel joined me via Zoom. Congratulations on Only Sisters. Thank you so much. It's exciting. It came out this week. Is it still exciting, even though it's not your first book? Oh, it is. It's just as exciting, just as nerve wracking. I was a bit under the weather, so I sent my kids to go and have a look at it at Indigo. (laughs) And then I posted a video. They're much prettier than I am anyway. That's very funny. So are you one of those authors that goes into a bookstore when you're, you know, when you're feeling good and moves your book to like the end of the rack or puts it so that the cover is facing out? I did um, in the beginning, but you know, after so many books, I realized that (laughs) someone's just going to come in right after and turn it the other way. But when I see it facing forward um, in the, when my kids went, I noticed it was face forward. I was very pleased. Well, I don't believe that's a big deal. You get, there's so many books, you got to catch uh, the eye of the consumer somehow. And, and the cover of the book is an eye catcher. So congratulations on that. Thank I want to start by going back a little ways, though. Now, how did Emily of the New Moon by Lucy Maud Montgomery help shape your writing? Oh, well, I was a little kid and I wanted to be a writer And this was completely outside the purview of my immigrant parents. It was the most impractical thing they could imagine. And so to have a book by a renowned Canadian author write a story about a dreamy girl that nobody understands made me feel like it was possible. And this is the importance of books, right, for kids and for adults, that it opens up new possibilities. It expresses what you feel. It expresses your hopes. It, it, you know, I read that book over and over. And it had it stayed with you, obviously, around uh, the time that you were 16, you sent your first short story, it was a science fiction story into a magazine. What do you remember about that story? And what did you learn from the process? So I wish I still had that story. I have odds and ends from my childhood. I don't have that one. And the only thing I can remember about it is that the place was called Varna. And I remember that because many years later, I read a science fiction book that had Varna as a place name. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, it was in the air. Um, Mainly what I remember about it is the typewriter, you know, that it was this really old typewriter. So you can write on anything and you can write anywhere. And even though my family wasn't supportive, I could still write. And I got a rejection letter and I survived. It actually wasn't a bad rejection letter. I didn't know at the time because it was my first and it was actually personalized and there was a little handwritten note on it. They probably realized I was a kid. Um, So it was actually a bit encouraging. But at the time, I just thought, oh, no, it's a rejection letter. I'm crushed. But Mm -hmm. then I survived. I kept every rejection letter that I received from magazines and publishing houses uh, until I finally got my first book published. And to me, they didn't really represent rejection as they uh, represented my perseverance. 
I kept them yes. all, and there were quite a stack of them <laughs> uh, <laughs> until eventually people saw the light and and started to publish me. But uh, for me, uh, they were very important, and they're still in here in a box somewhere, but they were very important uh, uh, documents for me to hang on to for a little while. Absolutely, yes. You're listening to Lillian Nattel on The Richard Krauss Show. Her new novel, Only Sisters, is available wherever you buy fine books. You clearly wanted to write. You clearly wanted to be a writer. But you took a, a break until your early 30s. Why did you come back to it? Uh, well, the break was somewhat involuntary. It was partly because I was in a terrible marriage. And it was just incongruent. I couldn't write in that environment and partly because i had this idea that to write you have to be someone who can get up at four in the morning and write for three hours before going to your boring job and my boring job was just not allowing me to do that <laughs> um, but then i left the terrible marriage and as soon as i left uh, my therapist said to me you should write in a journal and i thought she was psychic i mean how could she know that this was so important to me but i didn't realize this is standard advice but as soon as I started writing in a journal, I felt like I had been walking around limbless for years, like walking around somehow magically with no legs, operating with no arms. And suddenly my limbs were restored to me. Um, and I'm pausing here because I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is ableism. But that's how it felt to me at the time. Yeah. And and as soon as I did that, I thought. I cannot live without writing. Writing is who I am. I have to tell stories and I have to get them out in the world, however long it takes. And um, I started doing that. I wrote some nonfiction, a memoir about the process of being in therapy. I really wanted to write fiction. So then I wrote a contract with myself um, about writing fiction. And, and that's what got me into it. Well, you've written about child abuse, about uh, disassociative identity disorder. Uh, you've done historical fiction, contemporary fiction. Does the genre that you're working in affect the process of the way that you write? Oh, it totally affects the process. And the genre that I write in is determined by the story that I want to tell. But then there's an interaction. The, the genre itself informs the story. So it goes back and forth. And with historical fiction, I, I do a tremendous amount of research and the research itself for me um, puts boundaries around the story, whereas in contemporary fiction, the research is much more restricted. So in some ways, I find contemporary fiction freeing because of the research. But on the other hand, the research is a really nice crutch for me, honestly, <laughs> when it comes to historical fiction. It's like, I'm not creating this from nothing. There's history, you know, history. <laughs> Final question before we move on to the book. Do you ever miss your previous work as a chartered accountant? Absolutely, 100% no. <laughs> Everyone who knew me was so shocked when I went down that route, but I do not miss it. Let's talk about Only Sisters. Uh, it's the new book in stores right now. Uh, where did the inspiration for Only Sisters come from? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's one I'm actually prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> the others are all off the cuff. Well, when my kids were teenagers, I was caring for my elderly mother-in-law, who I loved very much, but was quite a difficult person. And at the same time, my sister-in-law, I was very close to her. She was a sister to me. Um, she was uh, seriously ill and we we lost her. And 
I was still working on my last book at the time, but when that book was done and I'd had time to, to, to process all of this, I really wanted to do something. The whole experience of sisters and the roles we have in the family and you know how we cope in different ways with dysfunctional families as as siblings growing up in the same family mm-hmm. it's something i was really grappling with and because i was the rebellious one in my family i decided to make the dutiful daughter the main character and then i was surprised to find out how much of me there actually was in her this pressure mm-hmm. i think a lot of women feel to be good you know to take care of others and be endlessly good at what point did you realize that? Because I often wonder when you have a, a novel that explores uh, so many uh, different aspects of uh, relationship, in this case, the relationship within dysfunctional families, um, that there must be a detailed treatment before you go in uh, to work on the book. Was there not on this one? And then it grew, the characters grew as you started to write it? Or how did it work? You got it 100%. So I did not have a detailed plan. I started writing. And when I sent it into my editor, after my agent had a first look, approved it, I sent it into my editor. And her comments were, it sounds like you're figuring things out as you go along. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I did. Sorry. And then I had to go back and take all of that material that me and evolved as I was going along and make it all organic. And that's really the crafting process after the exploratory creative process. Um, So definitely you're right about how that happened. And the one thing I had from the very beginning was the idea that here's this character, Joan, who is so good and she has to pose as her rebellious sister online and what it would be like to experience her sister as herself, how would that change her? Well, Joan and Sheila's mother is an interesting character. She constantly throws away their possessions just so she can buy new ones. Yes. Uh, Tell me about creating characters with little details like that, that make them so much richer and, and really give you a, a sense of understanding about them. You see, I want to understand the characters myself. So the details come about as I'm asking myself questions and I'm thinking, what impelled her to do this? How did she get started with this with this um, behavior? My mother-in-law was a hoarder and initially Sheila was a hoarder, but I was too close to it. it I, I couldn't write a full character because I was in, inhibited and constrained by, by my mother-in-law's story. And so I thought, well, what if there's something that's the opposite of hoarding? And I discovered there's this phenomenon called compulsive Spartanism that has the same psychological operations as hoarding, but the other way around, where someone, when they're stressed, feels compelled to declutter and to the point where they're throwing out things that they might need. Mm-hmm. I have never heard of such a thing. I hadn't either. Yeah. But once I, I started researching it and um, went to forums where people were talking about their experience of it or their experience of relatives having it, I just, I could really picture it because I understood the psychology psychology of it from my mother-in-law. And so it fully came alive. Like As soon as I had this, I could see Sheila. I could understand Sheila. I just, I got her. You're listening to Lillian Nattel on The Richard Krause Show. Her new novel, Only Sisters, is available wherever you buy fine books. Douglas Copeland told me one time that 
it's like when he's writing, it's like the characters are sitting on his shoulders and they're whispering into his ears the dialogue and, and hey, this would be cool if we did this next. Do I get a sense from you that you have a similar experience? I wish. I wish yeah. that was my experience. <laughs> my experience is more like my characters are whispering, but it's somewhere in a dark room and I have no lamp and I have to walk around and try to find and as I get closer, the whispering gets a bit louder, but then, oh no, I take a wrong turn and it's quiet again. And finally, finally, I'm in the same room with them after many drafts. <laughs> Now, this is in some ways a study in toxic behavior, uh, the book Only Sisters. Is it a cautionary tale of any sort? Is there a message to take away or is it simply a, a, a great read as we move into the late summer and fall? Well, I certainly hope it's a great read. Um, you know, for me, the message in the book is, I mean, the toxicity of the family is not unusual from my experience of my family and others that I know. But for me, I think the message is the persistence of love through that. And these sisters, despite the difficulty and complexity of their relationship, um, Vivian, you know, gave her sister the greatest gift possible, which was I can't reveal, but mm -hmm. I think it's it's the persistence of love. And and Joan is a middle-aged woman, and yet she has a coming-of-age experience in a sense. So that at any time of life, you can bloom, your life can be become new again. I, I get a sense just from speaking to you that it, that is something that would resonate with you, having started your professional writing career a little bit later than uh, some other people may have. Uh, in your 30s, after what you termed wasn't a, a great marriage, that there was a, a blossoming that happened. Yeah. And that probably uh, resonates very loudly with you uh, in Only Sisters. It absolutely does. You know, I definitely consider myself a late bloomer. I got married again at 40. I became a mother in my 40s. So it felt sometimes like I was squishing a whole life, a whole new life into the second <laughs> half of life. Uh, older than all the other mothers, even the older mothers, you know, my kids' school. So I, I collect late bloomer stories. It's, it's a subject close to my heart. Your TikTok channel, Lillian Nattle writes, uh, and there's a dot in between the names and, and the word writes, is very popular. What kind of writing advice do you offer over there? Well, you know, I just respond to other people and, and what their concerns are. And my main advice is, if you're young, like in your 20s, live so you have some experience to write about. Don't worry about writing too fast. Mm -hmm. And my other bit of advice is persistence. Like you just have to keep going because you have to do it for yourself. You can't do it in the expectation of fame and monetary mm -hmm. reward. Those things are lovely, but they're completely unpredictable and out of your control. And to read, of course, yeah. read great books. Are you working on something right now? I am working on something right now, and it's in another. It's in a different genre again. I I'm working right now on something in in um, urban fantasy. I've never written oh, wow. that genre before, and wow. I started out when I was young with fairy tales and folk tales. So, and my first novels were kind of infused with the folk tale motifs, even though they were magical, realist, historical fiction. So, I'm I'm turning my hand to that and. 
some of my friends love it. Some of my friends are scratching their heads, but that's <laughs> been my experience my whole life long. <laughs> Congratulations on Only Sisters, and I will look forward to reading the new book, and I promise I won't scratch my head. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much. <laughs> that was Lillian Nattel on The Richard Krause Show. Her new novel, Only Sisters, is available wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Lillian for coming by. Huge thanks to Zach Hansen for stopping by, taking some time out from the tour bus to talk to me today. You can find Hansen's new album, RGB, wherever you buy fine music. As always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>